Hi, this is Alana Yassine Harris Babu, and this is Field Pod Summer Shorts. wasn't too far of a step for me to end up in New York City because I also grew up in New York City. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking about this lately, like past year, and I feel like being in the arts, I'm always around all these people who have this amazing story about they traveled so far to come to New York and sacrificed so much or hated their town that they're from and went on all these adventures and landed here in this other adventure that is New York. But for me, I realized if I was from a small town in another state, I'd probably still be in that small town in another state. Oh, interesting. I'm from Brooklyn, and I like my hometown, and I like things that are familiar, and I'm still friends with my friend from preschool, and I like, you know, I live... I was recently, until recently, living like five blocks from my childhood home, and um, I like familiar stuff and (laughs) around familiar things. So, I mean, I think maybe like in the studio, like my adventures happen, but I realized, you know, I really just like familiar stuff, you know, and I really, and I mean, I think what I'm really fortunate in is that my hometown happens to be a place where lots of people who don't like their hometowns live. <laughs> so it's exciting and like dynamic and full of interesting stuff. Yeah, it's a magnet. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, and so I grew up in like Wingate, which is a neighborhood that maybe isn't one and maybe defined by Wingate Park. So, you know, if someone says I'm from Prospect Lefferts, I go, oh, me too. And if they say I'm from Crown Heights, I'm like, me too. And if they're from East Flatbush, they say, me too. (laughs) Because it's kind of, you know, the area around Wingate Park, right, where all those things meet. And so, like, the houses on the other side of the street are in Prospect Lefferts, which we learn when we look up property values because the house is directly across the street from mine and worth, like, so much uh, more. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, wow, it's, it's that, that quick of a Yeah, like the neighborhood branding or something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, but, you know, I think that um, now, like, being older, I really appreciate my neighborhood a lot more. And I think also appreciate the things that are being lost, you know, obviously because of gentrification and things like that and my neighbors. Mm-hmm. For me... Growing up, there was always this tension because I had from maybe kindergarten, like a scholarship to St. Anne's, which is like a fancy private school in Brooklyn Heights. And so, you know, my classmates wouldn't come to my neighborhood and it was something, you know, that, Uh um, you know, everyone's babysitter, nanny or maid or something lived in my neighborhood and that's the only way they knew about it. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like obviously part of a whole host of sorts of frictions or alienations from the like educational community I was in growing up. Did you feel like you were living in two worlds? I mean, I guess it, now in retrospect, it was normal Brooklyn stuff, but I uh, think that I did feel that way. I lived with my mom and my sister and my grandma growing up. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, and um, my mom uh, was a nurse. She's retired now. You know, we lived in a house and all of that, but I think like the context of being around these super rich people made me think that I... Was like operating from a space of lack that in retrospect, I'm like, no, like my mom had like a good union job and I had all the things that I needed. Uh (laughs) But you know, when you're just like in contrast to people of such privileged range. (laughs) And in New York City, the rich, rich is different than the rich other places. Yeah. And 
the school that I went to, which was such a gift, had like a really amazing art program. And, you know, there are some students there whose parents were artists. My mom really valued having me be exposed to art too or going to museums and things like that. Mm-hmm. Being an artist seemed like something that was possible to me from a young age. Oh, that's great. I wanted to ask you what it was like growing up with these, like, you have generations living in your house, and this is not always a mm-hmm. thing in America. In fact, America, America all in general wants to kick older generations out and put them in homes. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of even my path as an artist, like being with my grandma, she was definitely an artist in many ways, too. Mm -hmm. Her, like, official job was doing laundry in Bellevue Hospital, but she would make these elaborate, like, costumes with me and hand-sew things. She'd make leather purses by hand and, like, Mm. amazing crafts and crocheting things and was always thinking up, like, different projects together. And I think just seeing the way she dealt with material from her life. She grew up on a pig farm in Biloxi, Mississippi, you know, during the Great Depression. So even the way she could make food go so far, like Mm. cooking Mm -hmm. pigs to eat or like just thinking with a lot of consideration and care about the objects that she brought into her life and the materials that she interacted with. I think, you know, if I hadn't been with someone from her generation, I wouldn't have ever had that perspective. And it does seem that in your work you are very material-based and in a very fun, like I'm thinking of your um, your ceramic tool objects that are like <laughs> kind of like not good tools, but they're kind of beautiful objects and like, mm-hmm. just like, yeah, and you're using them to build other things and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I was definitely thinking about all of that. You know, I call them sometimes dysfunctional ceramics, so thinking uh-huh. about them not performing their intended task, but also how, the ways we think about dysfunction or function in terms of how interpersonal relationships and of course family relationships Uh I think for me like living in the house with my grandma and my sister and my mom there was definitely a lot of play or they exposed me to a lot of ideas of play in relationship to labor and work there's definitely if I visited my mom at her job she was a pediatric nurse so she'd be giving the kids these band-aids that look like weird grotesque like worms and stuff like Halloween themed Uh, uh band-aids or like mostly she'd be like sitting on a computer playing solitaire or something like I really started like really productively working I think similarly my grandma would kind of sneak opportunities to make play out of everyday things and one work I did uh, cooking with the erotic I was really thinking about this more specifically because there's this passage where Audre Lorde describes needing a bag of margarine during World War II Mm -hmm. and the like sensory qualities of doing that and she's describing almost this what we could describe as a state of lack, a lack of access to butter during wartime. Uh But then taken into her hands and through the lens of the erotic, she's operating from this space of enjoyment or strength. Uh And pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Finding finding pleasure. Yeah, and um, my mom really liked that passage when she visited me in my studio at Columbia because she did that when she was a girl. And um, it was when she's like had me in her late 40s, so she's a, I guess, pre-boomer. Mm-hmm. technically generationally oh, well. okay. um and so she remembered doing it when she lived with my grandma in this like fancy mansion in connecticut where my grandma was the maid and it was like the kid's job to need the margarine and it was something she really looked forward to in this sort of messy moment 
And so I think that always, that like kind of ethos sticks with me, which is like we might again think of that as a state of lack, like lack of time to just play and not be at work as a child, you know? Uh But through this sort of lens of like something that's maybe useful, but also has a non-utility oriented Uh action, something else could happen. Especially for me, like growing up in a home of just black women, I think that often like, narratives around what it is to be making or doing as a black woman are often or just even in pop culture today are still framed very much also around lack or like pathology or just bad shit that's happening to us or has happened to us Mm -hmm. and so I think that for me I I just like always try to reorient towards pleasure and like make-believe and these other kinds of things that happen Mm -hmm of maybe larger cultural trends or stories that are being told. The school that I went to, St. Nance, is sort of like a fancy private school, but also like an alternative school in many ways. So students are not given grades and are very much like treated like a little genius artist from the start or something. Um, and different artists and stuff have gone there, like Basquiat went there when he was a little kid, and like Lena Dunham and stuff, other oh. people in, in the creative fields. That's some nice, that's some nice bookends there. Lena yeah, Dunham, yeah, yeah. So, so. so art is kind of really central part of my education through each kind of age. And um, my kindergarten art teacher is also my high school art teacher and still is someone I'm close to today. And he remembers the kind of work that I made when I was little and stuff. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) My mom found out about the school and my brother got kicked out of Catholic school in the 70s. (laughs) And they were like, oh, we know this place that would take him or she heard of it somewhere. And back then it wasn't an expensive school. She could afford the tuition, like the full tuition as a nurse. Mm, uh Um, And they just skipped him a grade and he did fine. He was like just so bored in Catholic school that he was making trouble. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. So then, yeah, by the time I got to high school, I could decide to take, you know, mostly art classes. And I just felt so uncomfortable, like, in the milieu of the fellow students at my school that like being with my kindergarten through high school art teacher like in the painting studio was the place where I felt like most understood or safest uh, or most affirmed so I would just skip like all my classes on Friday and just hang out in the painting studio <laughs> and stuff like that um, sounds wonderful yeah 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 it was great and um I guess we all have our different brands of alienation that we're gonna have as high schoolers so maybe some kids in high school it was because they were artists uh-huh. but for me it was because like I was just around a bunch of rich white people <laughs> but so then I could be you know be an artist and you know you know I was painting a lot of pictures of my family that I'd find through these old archives and stuff uh-huh. like just an oil paint I feel like like a lot of us when we're kids it's like people are like oh you're good at drawing you're good at rendering the thing right and then mm-hmm. you're like I guess I have I want more effort and yeah, you keep yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But like it I, is kind of magical sometimes it is. to see someone able to render really well. It's like alchemical too, that transformation of like pigment into image. Like yeah. still, even though I'm not a painter, it still seems magical to me now. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, in that context I remember someone being like oh, why do you always paint black people, right? And it's like, that felt like me the crux of the problem in the place because I was painting my family, but that's uh-huh. the way that they... But you were seen as bla- painting black people. And yeah. Not, not your sister, your mom, your grandma, your, yeah. your family, your brother. <laughs> and in retrospect, too, like, yeah, like, kind of talking about how I'm kind of 
just doing maybe what one might have expected me to do my like superlative in high school senior year was most likely to make a film no one in the world will understand or something <laughs> so you know now, <laughs> now i'm a video artist um it totally came true <laughs> yeah but then i remember like why it made me so mad because i was so mad about it and just this week i remembered why it made me so mad which was because it was in response to this film that they showed at the school whatever film screening that was about police brutality and like i feel like again i felt i remember reading that and being like i can't wait to get away from these fucking people and now uh -huh. i'm like oh yeah it was because i was like making work about something that was really important to me that they thought no one will understand uh-huh that they, they maybe just didn't understand at all right? yeah and couldn't connect to and, yeah and they were like well she's an artist i guess <laughs> <laughs> like, wow mm -hmm. uh, that's a pretty huge schism there right mm-hmm um you know and nowadays i feel like there like many institutions are pro I probably more self-aware about these things <laughs> you hope so yeah right? I, I hope so i, I hope say. so <laughs> yeah. um uh -huh. but yeah so now i you know i feel like i have there are, people do understand my work, so yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> in a good place. Yeah, I'm in the same place geographically, but also, you know, in a new place. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But you're, you're, you have traveled in your work and, and physically as well, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time, like, you pop up on my feed, I'm like, oh, I remember the show that you were in that we did in New Haven. Yeah, um, I mean, that was, like, my first uh, kind of real show ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I remember being so intimidated to make work for a show because I was like, oh, my God, it's going to go into space with, like, artists, capital A artists. I had interned in art space as an undergrad because I went to Yale for undergrad, but I never thought that I would, like, make work to go into the space. <laughs> we did an open call for local artists to um, do collaborations with New York artists. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was the, yeah, that was the thesis for the show. It was, it was called Forced Collaboration, where you gave a work and they gave a work and then you, mm -hmm. you got to do something to the other person's work. Or, or yeah. Not. And I think you got paired with David, right? David yeah, Humphrey. David Humphrey. Yeah. And again, I was like, whoa. But I remember we didn't know who the other artist was, right? Yes. I remember like my video that I made with the piece that he sent in. I like made lots of photocopies of it, set it on fire, put it through a shredder, yeah. did all these things. <laughs> <laughs> and I love David's work so much. And then when I went to grad school the next year, and at my graduate school they have these things called like mentors, mm -hmm. and you like do stuff with them for a week. And then David ended up being one of my mentors that's in grad school. That's so cool. School. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That was a really fun show. So were you always interested in video, film, uh, moving image? It was really cool at St. Anne's. Like your first film that you learn from class that you take is like with a Krasnikov, like big Soviet era film camera. Oh, wow. And then you like work your way up to digital or something. Really? That's yeah. Cool. That's pretty amazing. So I think like the way I think about editing video is still really material because I think from like cutting physically and <laughs> yeah. like pasting together. So it feels still kind of sculptural to me. But yeah, I think when I got to college, I picked Yale for a few reasons, like seemed fancy best financial aid and also because I knew they had like a great art program but I could if I wanted to try something else there were other things there mm, too mm -hmm, yeah you know I, you know I ended up sticking with art in the end <laughs> there it felt like all the serious artists were painters or something so I had to like keep being a painter <laughs> but then I took an amazing video class 
with Johannes Duong, oh, wow. uh, where it felt like I felt really comfortable, like expressing the breadth of my ideas in that space, in the space of his class. And so by the time I got to my thesis, I realized there's just like one moment in the life of a painting I was excited about when it was still wet and messy and still becoming itself. And I figured, why don't I just record that with a camera and share that moment with people instead of the like dried up artifact that is the final painting. <laughs> Shots fired at painters. <laughs> no, I love painters. I love painting. As long as just you like my person <laughs> personally, my paintings are dried up artifacts, not other people's. <laughs> so that's why I made a video towards the end of being a student. Did you take time off between undergrad and grad? Not really. I guess I had the one year in Hartford, but I was doing this fellowship at Trinity College that was called Fifth Year Fellowship. Oh. And it was for the year after undergrad, um, and you're expected to be applying to grad school while you're doing it, and they gave you like a studio in the senior studios there, and you're almost like a professional TA, but also not getting paid enough to live. <laughs> I was so broke when I lived oh, there, so broke. Professional TA does not sound. Yeah. <laughs> so I would like work a little Hartford public schools too and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's great by. But yeah, so basically I've only ever been in school or taught at school. Uh-huh. You're, you're full academic. Yeah. <laughs> indoctrinated. Yeah. Just, I feel like it's like, you know why? Um, I need... I need the conversations of like talking about my students' work, showing them new things to remind myself that I'm like excited about making work. Like to mm. show them the things that excited me when I was younger and see them get excited again. Yeah. And it's and like, I, yeah. To renew it to yourself when yeah. you're renewing it, when you're like exposing them. It's like, yeah, this is such a great thing. I remember coming across this. Like, yeah. I still think about, uh, I always make these lists of like, Ten, like 10 things that I love right now or something but it's also like 10 things that I that really influenced me or really or that I think about and I continually think about mm -hmm. and one of them and everybody knows this I always talk about it but like is um Chris Marker's La Jate mm. like and I remember seeing that and being like this is like about the material of the film this is about like the index of memory this is about also entertainment and mm -hmm. it's not held from you in a way that a lot of whatever structuralist film could be you know what I mean like when you can when you look at something and you don't you don't have access to it um, and this seemed to have all of these entry points and was still talking about ideas that were really really uh, complex ideas mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I always share that like as with people constantly because I'm just like you know you don't have to be an artist to like this but this is like for me like an ultimate artwork because it has all of these Mm -hmm. entry levels. Yeah, I, I like to show some Chris Marker too at the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it's it's so excited to also, yeah, revisit all the different works that I think especially teaching video, I feel like you can really show some work that has many different points of on, entree and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and I like to ask them to when they apply to my class to make a video saying what they define video art as, you know? Oh, that sounds uh, really great. Yeah, and it's so many different things, and I feel like it's, that's what's so exciting about it to me is how it's 
always changing and now even since when I started teaching it's like now I feel like they show up already like having had a YouTube channel as a child mm, and being yes. young TikTok stars yeah. uh, you know a million transitions and editing already so you're helping people frame something that they're doing already I've had this discussion with photographers a lot about the state of photography because of Instagram it's such a natural language for everybody at this point and especially younger generations that seeing a photograph as the material thing that itself is like it's not valued or something you know mm. like you're, they're just kind of like yeah okay yeah and not necessarily just generational but in the art world in general like it's kind of photography lives in a very I don't know specific small area I mean so, I think it can be intimidating I feel sometimes teaching something that's so the stuff of life because mm. it's more difficult to be like here I am the authority you know uh, uh -huh. maybe if I was teaching drawing I could be like you definitely don't know two-point perspective and I do <laughs> you know yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but I can't say that about making videos so I think that then there's also a lot of opportunity in there something that's really exciting about it because it's more like something that they're doing so quickly in their day-to-day -day lives you know everyone will have like a thousand videos on their phone yeah like trying then the, the thing is to try to get them to slow down in their relationship to it yeah yeah slow that. down see all the things that are magical are actually just like absolutely not every day or not quotidian about video mm -hmm. whether that's things that they've taken for granted or even things that happen when you spend time with a nicer camera and really try to figure out how it works. Yeah. Because I feel like for huh. me, the technology itself, the cameras themselves sort of generate ideas mm. rather than me like coming to being like, I have an idea, you know, I don't have like a storyboard or something. And then I say, okay, how do I just execute each frame with uh -huh. the lens? For me, it's more like this sort of back and forth with what the technology is capable of. Maybe in the way someone might think about relating to clay or something like that. Like, how does it dry? How does it crumble? You know, I'm like, how yeah. does the lens take in light? Can you tell us about one of your pieces that played back and forth between the technology and yourself to create something? In the cooking with the erotic, I think for in that, I was so interested in just the way food gets lit in cooking shows, right? Yeah. Where you could even like a turd and it would look delicious with studio lighting. Yeah. Or the most wonderful stew in the world, like with a flash or something in low lights, going to look disgusting. <laughs> and so also just timing in that too, like uh -huh. that things are just on the screen for long enough to seem enticing or exciting, but if they stayed a little bit longer they might become banal or grotesque or something uh -huh. like that and so I wanted to make a video that kind of came up on the edge of that and maybe applied those strategies a multitude of different kinds of surfaces and seeing what might happen just how you could engage with work outside of the space of utility how could you engage with this te lighting technique that's meant to sell something mm. in a way that doesn't necessarily do that you kind of disrupt it sometimes i feel like i start by sincerely trying to mimic the form but because <laughs> i'm me i am human i like inevitably fail and uh -huh. then i like lay all those failures bare or something mm -hmm. in while i'm editing Mm -hmm. And then that's where the friction comes from or the interest. Then it begins sort of intuitive or something and then becomes more and more refined as I edit. Oh. I often wish I was someone who could go into the process of making a video with a bit more of a plan. But <laughs> but, you're, but you're not that kind of... Like you, have you tried to do that? 
I have, and it's been just sort of less fun. Oh, okay. Like, the video that I made for the 2019 biennial, I shot it abroad, like in Senegal, where mm. my dad is from, and I just had to plan ahead because I was shooting it at these specific sites, and I needed someone else to hold the camera for me, mm-hmm. and so I had to have more of a plan. Did it just wasn't fun. No, I had um, one random French dude I hired who was like, yeah, and he's fine. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I would have, I would have wanted to hire a Senegalese person, but it was, I was asking too much of for someone to be a cinematographer, like do a camera, and then also like, why would they randomly speak English? Like no one's like uh, uh-huh. schooling isn't English there. So okay. he was the person I found. That was the first time for that piece. That was the first time I bought my own camera. Actually, I made them this long, the museum this long PDF about why they should give me money to pay to go to Senegal and to pay <laughs> uh-huh. someone to do it. And I think also that's why I like stuck around schools too, is like I got my first personal laptop since I was a student. I've just been using all the equipment of my various academic jobs to make my work. I haven't owned my own until uh-huh. pretty recently. I'm so grateful. Yeah, so I had to plan for that and it just wasn't so rewarding. Because then when things go off the plan, it feels like something's wrong. Whereas mm. when I'm just alone in my studio and things go off the plan, usually I'm like, oh, pivot, like new yes. idea, something else, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and also I just like don't like being out there. Like I don't like being out there. I don't like being seen <laughs> by people and I'm thinking through my ideas, mm. performing in that way. Yeah. And so I like the camera because I can show people just a very small snippet of everything that happened. I can cut out the before, I can cut out the after and I can... reframe it so is that the only one that you shot out yeah i guess that same piece i shot some stuff out in about like in the restoration hardware store in meatpacking Mm -hmm. district Mm -hmm. and so i think i had friends hold the camera a couple times for that before i used to use a remote a lot even though i like so flagrantly put myself inside of the work i don't (laughs) like to have an audience in real time when you are performing in the studio are you imagining an audience when I was in school, we went on this trip to do a studio visit at EAI with Dara Birnbaum. And she said what was so exciting to her about video when it became available as a tool was that she could do a performance in which she was the primary or first viewer or the first audience, you know? Mm-hmm. Because video allowed for you to play something back right away in a way that you couldn't when you had to send the film off. She saw that also as like a sort of feminist tool for her in her own process. Uh-huh. I liked that idea. Like maybe the first audience is like me editing and then it starts to expand more and more as I refine or bring in other kinds of language or things like that. I mean, now like saying it, it feels a little bit decadent to me for me to be like, I am my first audience, <laughs> you know? <We're> but all... <laughs> I don't, but you didn't say it like that. <laughs> yeah. But then I mean, it's like, okay, me first when I'm editing, but also like almost every piece that I make, I know where I'm showing it before I make it. Oh. So also like whoever I think is going to show up at whatever that place is <laughs> yeah. is yeah. an audience. <laughs> you have some of your videos online, right? So mm-hmm. like that's like an audience. That's the world, right? That's yeah. I mean, that's what I like so much about videos, how it can meet people where they are. It's sort of mm. like emissaries from the studio. Yeah. And that it could keep transforming in front of different audiences. And also, yeah, the way that I could show a video over and over again. Mm-hmm. With, or multiple times in multiple places at the same time. Mostly the videos that aren't on my website aren't there because I don't like them anymore. So that's usually the deciding factor. Um, 
Because I get so frustrated, especially trying to teach video, and you just can't find that. You just can't find video in the way that you can find JPEGs of sculptures and paintings and stuff like that. I think there's always been a wonder about the product of a video. Like, if I put my videos online, I no longer have, they're, like, I don't have control of them or something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I guess I respect that for other artists, their relationship to their work is such that it needs, like, really specific context for it to be itself. Mm-hmm. I respect that, but it also is a bummer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for me as a as a desiring viewer who can't possibly like travel to every screening of everything that I would want to see. Yeah, what is that? Their uh, shit. What's it called? I think it's like it's not video active, but it's like video database. Video like data bank. Da yeah, data bank. And there's also an electronic arts intermix too. Mm, yes. Are those, are, so that one, one of them is here, right? Or are they yeah. both still here? So right? I think Video Data Bank is associated with um, Art Institute of Chicago or School of Art Institute of Chicago uh, okay. now. I don't know if it always was. Uh -huh. And then Electronic Arts Intermix is in Chinatown. Okay. Huh. And they've been around for like 50 years or so, maybe more. I, I took a, a video class from someone who was like the director there when I was in grad school and really lovely person and was just like, come by anytime, like anybody can come by and you can see any video that's in our collection. But that was only there. I think mm -hmm. you could take things out, like our institutes could, but I, I remember as like a, a person, you could go and see stuff, but you couldn't like mm -hmm. walk away with it or anything like that. Yeah, I think they have subscriptions for school libraries, or I know they do, and I'm trying to finesse my library, school library to sign up for it now. Oh, yeah. be such a dream. I was really lucky. I worked in one of the first video libraries in the 90s uh, at Otis College, and we got to make the catalog in a certain sense. It, was, it wasn't like videos were super new or anything like that, yeah. but it was like getting like um, video art, trying to like track down video art and, and like buy it from the artist, or I'm not sure if it was called Video Zine or something like that. And um, it, was a, it was a video, like a mixtape of video art that would come once a month. Oh, cool. And I remember seeing Pipilotti's stuff for the first time there. There was just, it was just filled with stuff. And there was also videos of uh, installations. That makes me think of Nestor Cire or Cire something. Cire, uh, maybe he's a Cuban artist. And he showed this project at the Queens Museum. But basically, I guess in Cuba, oftentimes you can order like a DVD or a disc that'll have like the internet on it since people can't stream. Oh, so it'll be like wow. a weekly disc that you can order that'll have like YouTube videos and things like on it that people distribute from person to person. Yeah. And so amazing. he curates like the weekly one of art, like internet art and video art and just like art oh, that's that cool. people can subscribe to in Cuba and that's like awesome. circulate that way. Yeah, that's Huh. I mean, I always I think about that a lot about uh, in general about community and trying to like make opportunity for regular whatever community. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Like I think that's that's really I don't know. That's really exciting and inspiring. Being able to like open sort of doors and, and like see I don't know what what people are doing in their studios or by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> is such a special thing. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways. That's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs>
And now you have a podcast to do it. Yeah, Field yeah. Project. Field Project was a lot about um, just trying to help people. And like when I came out of undergrad, I didn't know how to navigate the art world. There's no one way to do it or anything like that. But there's also nobody for me, nobody holding my hand and being like, do this. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to have a, a place that has open calls in Chelsea, a place you could send stuff. And, you know, we would actually look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool. I mean, for me, you know, I was looking <laughs> for something to do. That's the first thing I applied to, so... I mean, that was also a thing that we did with the uh, with ArtSpace, and um, they were, they just asked me, like, what, you know, do you want to do a show? And I was like, yeah, I do want to do a show, but I want to do, try to connect communities. It's like, oh, and we need to do open calls, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's feeling very full circle for me now, because I have a show there um, next month. Really? That's yeah. so great. <laughs> oh, my God. about work that you feel was like a very successful work for you that kind of really sort of was in tune with all of the all of that you wanted to come out of it I guess mm-hmm. yeah I, <laughs> a I, masterpiece not, <laughs> yeah none I remember sometimes talking someone was telling me about you know like Lauren Lauren Hill syndrome or something right that uh-huh. she in the miseducation of Lauren Hill kind of did absolutely everything that she needed to do in that one album and then she she just kind of lost it or something you know so it's like maybe I don't want any work that I do to (laughs) do everything I need to do because I want like each work to sort of uh, ask more questions than it answers to make Mm -hmm. me keep going but then on the other side there's also just this simple element where whatever the most recent piece I make is I'm I'm like totally certain it's the worst piece I've ever made in my life and I'll never make anything you like again uh-huh. and then I need to like let it marinate for like a year or something and then look back on it and be like oh that wasn't so bad or like uh-huh. talk about it <laughs> with other people I'm hoping to not be that way now uh-huh. anymore I think that it took me a long time to develop a or like I just hadn't Maybe it didn't take me a long time. Maybe it's taken me a normal amount of time to develop a rhythm with my practice where I can, like, maybe believe in it a little bit more. Mm. I think because I, you know, I'm 31, so, like, I I think because I, like, went to school so soon and then felt like I had all these deadlines, like, right away after school that I had this slight, like, alienation from my process because it was always super deadline-oriented from the start and super about like what expectations I thought other people had or something mm-hmm. that only just now am I feeling like okay like this is the amount of time it takes me to make a, a piece comfortably mm-hmm. <laughs> or like these are the different kinds of moves that I do mm-hmm. or this is the way that I research because I always felt like I was just tumbling into the next deadline not knowing why I made the decisions that I made mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now I guess I'll say maybe I'm most excited about, like, the next piece I'm going to make or something. What's coming up and what what are you excited about that's, that's happening in the studio or outside? I think I'm excited about this commission that I'm making for something called the Welcome Collection, which is in London. And it's this place that I've never been to, but um, that is, like, I think, me- like a medical archive. And then also they do these shows that like commission contemporary art as well. And so they're doing this show about milk. And so I'm making a piece for them about that. I'm thinking about black maternal breastfeeding. 
and in terms of personal anecdotes and also how it's framed in literature and also research and that these kinds of legacies of history of alienation from our bodies and empowerment and also just what it means to be like a continuous a sort of conduit from one person to the next so I've been looking at you know the different ways say like Toni Morrison frames it but also oh. different experiences like my mom or sister have had of either like oh. dysphoria or joy and the whole thing has like changed so much since I started working on it because of the formula shortage and then the overturning of Roe um, mm-hmm. so now there's like all like a million more things to think about than when I sort of started going down the path on this commission but hopefully it'll be like an installation with video and stuff in uh, march 2023 i'm also excited about the show at art space but that'll be like kind of three older works reframed oh okay and when you show older works you redo it like like yeah it's kind of the same thing but it's also like a new context the same way that you were talking about your work earlier like you like it continually changes right yeah i'll be new sculptures new scale or wall uh i think also the place that it'll be in will really change the meaning Mm -hmm. so like a piece i made reparation hardware about um reparations and high-end furniture or something like first I showed it in a block in New York City that had a lot of high-end furniture stores and galleries on it Uh I like the idea that I could have this installation that could confuse itself as one or the other confuse the viewer Uh and um, where was that at where Larry it's on Orchard Street okay in Lower East Side Chinatown And then I also showed that piece in uh, Chimborazo Park in Richmond, which I had started working on the piece when I lived in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but I didn't know the history of this park, even though I liked hanging out there. And the park was a Confederate hospital during the Civil War, the site of a Confederate hospital. And then it was um, a freedman's like, community and school, like first like lodging for formerly enslaved people and stuff after the Civil War. And so there I showed it on, like, the structure that was, like, a replica kind of of the houses folks might have lived in during that time. Wow. And this kind of nighttime uh, light and video festival that they have there in Richmond at 1708 Gallery. And then, you know, I showed it again in... um, uh, in Australia, and it was like on these sort of unceded Aboriginal territories. So they're thinking about their like, what does reparations mean in their context or uh-huh. community? And then showing it in the UAE, they're thinking about like, what role does high end design play in inequalities there? So I really like how a piece can just totally change like on a different geography or with a different audience. I always tell people to show old work because it's okay if that work is like six years old. Like if it's a good work, it's a good work. It's okay to like, you you could show something today that you made about abortion 50 years ago and it's like, you know, and like you could talk about this loop and how they're connected and so mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like there's always a new context to kind of explore things. Yeah, I think I used to feel guilty about like, I used to feel like, oh, I need to constantly have a brand new idea each uh, time. Yeah. And, and and I'm like, also, like, most people who see any given work that I show probably haven't seen any other work that I've shown. <laughs> like, so they're not going to care. But yeah, I had yeah. some imaginary critic in my head. I think that's part of the, the institutional problem of uh, the, the art educational system where it's like, make, 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 yeah. make, make, make. And, like, and it's got to be fresh. It's got to be new. It's got to be interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you have to... Yeah, and now I'm like, no one truly cares but me. Like, no yeah. one really cares. Capitalism. 
<laughs> so true. Is there any shows that you've seen that you would like, that you think other people should see? Oh, shout outs to a show, group show at Candace Media Gallery called Power Tools. Okay. I have some work in. Oh, I liked actually the Yamafe group show Vibrant Matters, created by Melanie Kress at Deitch. Oh, that's up now. That's up now? Okay. I haven't seen that. I was there last for that uh, Wonder Woman show. Oh, cool. That was pretty... Did you see that? Did you get a chance no. to see that? Oh. There, you know, there are a lot of things in my head that I really want to see. Wonder Woman's making me think that because I really want to see the Dara Birnbaum at Bard Hessel Museum right now. Mm -hmm. And I really want to see Designing Motherhood at uh, Mass Art in Boston right now. But yeah. maybe I'll get there. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, I know. Thanks cool. for talking with me. This is great. Thank you. Nice yeah. Catching up with you. This is fun. Thank you for having me. This is Field Pod Summer Stitch. Have a great summer. last semester mm -hmm. called junior seminars for like junior art majors and I was really relishing being like in my day this yeah. racist thing happened <laughs> and having the students go oh, we can't believe that happened to you you know I was like yeah right that sucked <laughs>